0: Welcome to the Locking Castle Church podcast. This Sunday morning teaching was given as part of the Identity and Purpose series. It's nice to see you all here today, Um, and welcome. Today we'll be continuing our sermon series, uh, looking at our identity and our purpose. And this morning we'll be taking a look at the parable of the unforgiving servant, or the unmerciful servant. Uh, No doubt you've heard this one before. Uh, it's a great illustration of what forgiveness can look like on the surface. Uh, the practical point being that through Jesus we are utterly forgiven and that we are asked to pass on that forgiveness as we go. But even though we're well versed in the practical meaning, it's really important that we drill down and make sure we understand the spiritual meaning. First, let's look at, uh, take a practical look at the practical meaning of forgiveness i'll do that with a tiny little story just something small just something silly so you may be surprised to hear that if you are living with me you need to have a forgiving heart i know this this is a shock to you all because i seem so perfect (laughs) but carolyn will attest that if you live with me you need to have a heart that is willing to forgive Sometimes I can be a little bit annoying. Sometimes I do things that aren't necessarily, you know, expected. But Carolyn forgives. So I asked Carolyn, I said, Carolyn, I I need some material for this sermon. I need to give a small example of some niggly little thing I do that maybe winds you up that you need to forgive me for. And about two and a half hours later, (laughs) once she'd finished listing them off, I decided I would just tell you instead about my disappearing man trick. Picture this. Carolyn is at home. She's walking up the stairs. At the top of our stairs is a washing basket. Right next to the washing basket, she doesn't see me, but she does see a pair of shoes, a shirt, a pair of trousers, a pair of socks, and some wife runs. If she's lucky, they were clean on that day. I Thank you. You you wouldn't whistle if you saw it. I have performed the amazing disappearing man trick. I am nowhere to be seen, but my dirty laundry is there on the ground, maybe 30 centimetres away from the washing basket. And according to Caroline, I've done this more than once, but she forgives me every single time. Some would say that actually she's just exercising forbearance. Uh, the delaying of the punishment I deserve for this awful crime. But love covers a multitude of sins, and actually, I own up to it. I get it wrong. I'm sorry. I'm imperfect. And she exercises mercy and lets me off, giving away the right to punish me for my terrible crime by throwing my clothes out of the window. (laughs) So that's just a small, silly, let's face it, that's a silly example of how we need forgiveness in daily life, how love does cover a multitude of sins, and how we all need mercy. We all need the social lubrication of easing that machine. We're individual parts of the machine, but we need that oil, the oil of forgiveness every day. And we all need mercy being granted that second chance, even though we really don't deserve it. But we also need to recognize That that kind of forgiveness is great, but forgiveness really comes into its own when we speak about the big stuff. Forgiveness is so precious. When forgiveness occurs, the conflict ceases and the imprisonment can end. That conflict can be huge. It can tear apart families. It can separate uh, relationships. It can make great situations fall to pieces. The imprisonment of unforgiveness can take hostage innocent parties. It can spill over and hurt those who aren't involved in the slightest. And sometimes when we don't forgive, the conflict is inside us, and we're the ones who are imprisoned. We're the ones taken hostage. Forgiving and being forgiven changes how people see us, and so often it changes how we see ourselves. For forgiveness is a widely applauded concept it's not a uniquely christian virtue right but we, we all forgive everyone we know are willing to forgive they have the capacity for forgiveness the difference between the world's forgiveness and the forgiveness that jesus embodies in this parable is that jesus embodies and commands a forgiveness that is unconditional and often is unreciprocated jesus asks us to be completely countercultural let's go back to the scripture when Peter comes to Jesus he asks a straightforward question about forgiveness he says Lord how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times it's really important that we pay attention to the question being asked here some translations phrase Peter's question as forgiving a brother or sister who fools you this gives a whole new angle to the scenario how many times have you felt you've been made a fool of because of somebody's actions? How many times have you felt that you've made a fool of yourself? When you feel a fool, the natural human reaction is to get them back. That's your instinct, to try and get them back, to make, the same, to make them feel the same way that we did, right? That's the natural human reaction. Peter, being an Israelite, would have been well-versed in what we now know as the Old Testament. So he could very well have been mirroring the numbers given in Genesis, Chapter 4, verse 24, where Cain and Lamech's lust for revenge is laid bare. Maybe that was a part of his thinking. Maybe he was thinking that forgiveness is tied to that feeling we have inside us when we're wronged or made to feel a fool, and that the natural reaction of wanting to revenge is a mirror of that. But I'm sure that Peter was not just asking how many times should we forgive. Really, he was also asking the question... When somebody wrongs me, who should I be? I know I shouldn't be somebody who aims to get revenge, but how far do I take that? How long until I give up on forgiving somebody and just tear into them? Jesus responds to Peter's seven with a number even more generous, 77. In fact, some disagree on whether this was actually the number Jesus gave uh, with some translations opting for 70 times 7, again, potentially mirroring that same verse in Genesis that Peter may have been drawing from in the first place. If forgiving somebody seven times is already generous and countercultural, then Jesus' command to forgive somebody 77 times is utterly radical. If it's 70 times 7, then it's almost ludicrous. What's clear? is that Jesus wasn't putting a practical limit on the number of times his followers should forgive. He shouldn't even really be keeping count. And if you link his response back to the passage in Genesis, Jesus could very well be saying to his followers that they should look at those who are the most vengeful, the most eager to get revenge and retaliate and get retribution, and to give an equal level of ferocious forgiveness instead. Jesus then tells the parable itself, with the first servant owing his master an enormous sum of money, 10,000 talents. There's no mention of how the servant got into this debt or even anything about the servant's identity, really. But the amount would have been staggering, an unbelievable amount. Unpayable. I did some research to find the exchange rate of the pound versus the talent. I found a lot of information, but only one answer that the exact numbers really don't matter, and that the debt owed was unimaginably large. The debt could never be repaid, but the servant fell on his knees and begged his master. I read one translation from Aramaic that translated the servant's plea as, let me breathe. He felt strangled, suffocated by this debt, and his master took pity on him and forgave him the debt. Can you imagine the relief the servant must have felt? That burden, that suffocation of debt lifted from him. He must have felt fantastic. He had received the most astounding gift of forgiveness. Unfortunately, he hadn't properly recognised this gift. He went straight out and found a fellow servant who owed him a relatively tiny debt, 100 denarii. That's About £3,500 hundred pounds—it's really nothing compared to the debt that the master had just written off. The first servant went for his fellow servant's neck, the very passage through which you breathe, ignoring the suffocation he had just been relieved of himself, demanding this money back selfishly. The second servant's pleas for mercy were ignored, and the unmerciful servant had this poor man thrown in prison. The other servants saw this, and they were outraged, and they went to tell the master. Imagine how they must have felt seeing somebody receive such a gift of forgiveness and then watching that same person be so merciless. It's a fair guess that this really upset people. Ultimately, the master called the unmerciful servant in. The servant was reprimanded, and he was told that he should have extended the mercy he received instead. The mercy extended to him was replaced with torment. It's it's difficult. Uh, We need to separate forgiveness from justice. Loving people still want justice to be done. Forgiving people want justice to be done. It's inherent to us, and it's inherent to God. Justice is inherent to God. Desiring justice is a good thing. Was justice done when the first servant was imprisoned for his lack of mercy? Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 19, they read, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance that the punishment of evil is exclusively God's territory and we clearly steered away from pursuing justice on our own terms. Were the other servants wrong to go to the master with what they saw? Are we wrong if we see a wrong being done and we wish to put that right? God is truth. We can't ignore that we've been wronged and it's no sin to wish for justice to be done. But note that it's the master and not any of the servants who has the final say. Forgiveness is not a violation of justice. It doesn't negate justice. You can forgive and still have justice be done. And in daily life, we often need to learn to live in the tension between the two. This parable ends with the first servant having to pay his original debt, plus he was imprisoned and he was tortured for his lack of mercy. If only he had properly recognised the wonderful gift of forgiveness he had received that time. He might have lived the full and free life that his master clearly wanted him to have. The final line of the parable, from the NIV, verse 35, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I'm just going to read that again so it sinks in for me as well. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We know that parables use hyperbole. We also know that Jesus paid the unimaginably large debt of our sin on the cross. But it's clear to me that if you receive the gifts of forgiveness and mercy and grace, you've got to pass them on. Otherwise, you may just risk even more turmoil than if you had not been forgiven in the first place. How's that for a view of forgiveness? When I consider that I'm compelled to forgive as I have been forgiven in this radical way, this this uncompromising way, and not just give that idea lip service, say, yeah, yeah, of course, of course I forgive you, but then kind of have this this bubbling in my head at the back, thinking about this, still wishing for wrong to be done. There's a human part of me that doesn't like it. It's challenging to realise that if I want to forgive as God forgives me, that I need to gain a new and balanced perspective on the person that wronged me that I need to treat them with compassion, that the world's rules no longer apply, and I need to give up the right to punish them without end. I mustn't hold what they've done against me. Instead, I need to take the eternal perspective and try to live the identity and purpose God has for me. And part of that is being able to forgive like him. How different would our lives look if we gave and received ferocious forgiveness conflicts could cease and strongholds could form relationships could be healed and families could be brought back together we could all be reunited and inside ourselves we could stop drinking the poison of unforgiveness wishing that the other person would die drinking this poison we're only hurting ourselves and our internal healing could begin Please allow me to be clear on this. I'm not suggesting for a second that you can just go up to somebody and phone somebody up and say, oh, hey, I know you're wrong with me, but I forgive you. And all of our problems instantly disappear. That's that's nonsense. Anyone who tells you that is nonsense. I'm not saying that deep-seated traumas and long-held hurts immediately melt when we say a few words. And I'm definitely not saying that forgiving those who caused you great hurt is easy. I'm not saying that forgiving ourselves is easy, but Scripture does make the spiritual power of forgiveness very clear. What settings and scenarios can you think of that could be totally transformed through the spiritual power of forgiveness? Think of the servants that saw the unforgiving nature of somebody who had just received such wild mercy That unforgiveness caused so much of an issue amongst the servants that they went all the way to the master with their unhappiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 26 and 27. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. When we are a part of settings and scenarios that become bitter, poisoned, and segmented by a refusal to forgive and extend mercy, it's hard to disagree that unforgiveness breeds contempt and fuels problems in ourselves, in others, and in communities. And the church is definitely not immune to this phenomenon. The church at large is absolutely chock full of people holding on to something heavy. It's packed with people who accidentally forget who they are and what they're here to do. Our identity is a really fiercely fought concept right now, right? Where and who we belong to and what we define ourselves as. What box do I fit in? How should I label myself so that people accurately categorise me? Are the labels I've had since childhood actually an accurate description of me? Am I just the sum of the things I do and the things I purchase? But no, we are the body of Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit unites us to him. Our identity is in him. It's throughout the Bible repeatedly, those words, in him. Our identity is in him. The Methodist covenant that we, we, we looked at, we, we went into, we experienced last week makes this abundantly clear too. We find our identity in our relationship with God in him. No matter what hats we wear or roles we perform, it's really clear that we're part of the body of Christ. We are forgiven children of God. Our salvation is based on forgiveness and we're expected to do our best to live and forgive as he does. There's no doubt that we work better as individuals, as groups, and as a body of Christ when we do. And while we don't live in that identity that God has for us, where we're not living in him, we're falling short of expectation. Purposefully or not, we're putting up a barrier. Through our actions, through our thoughts, don't underestimate the power of your thoughts, by the way. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Pray for God's assistance in taking every thought captive, because the battleground is in the mind. and if you're not winning the war there, you're going to end up with some big barriers. A barrier between us and God's will for us. I don't like the sound of that. A roadblock to our purpose as disciples, building the kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 15. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. In the epistle to the Hebrews, most likely it was Paul who wrote about obedience and discipline when it came to the word, and the dangers of not heeding its spiritual messages. Running the race of faith by laying aside every weight. (laughs) The race of faith is going to be a pretty arduous one if we're trying to run it, holding on to big, heavy things that separate us from God. Let's not hold on to anything that gets in the way of what God tells us we are, who we are, and what we're here to do. All of this is pretty heavy, right? Some uneasy sitting, I can see. That's fine. All of this seems huge, I completely get it, it is huge, but really it's a change inside ourselves, it's a shift in our focus, a weighty reminder that we need to keep asking ourselves, am I responding to things the way God wants me to? What heavy rocks am I holding on to that make living my God-given identity a struggle? How much do I want to be in line with the God-given identity I have? And am I willing to do what's necessary to fulfill my purpose? Start by asking the Holy Spirit to fill you with a fire. A fire for living your God-given identity. And seek the Lord's guidance in helping you embody the identity that he has for you. If you need to forgive somebody... Pray that God will start moving you towards inner peace so that you can become ready to forgive. Pray for the opportunity to forgive. Pray for opportunities to forgive. Pray that you will appreciate the weight but the freeing blessing of the precious gift you've received, of forgiveness. Pray into situations that have been poisoned by unforgiveness. Ask the Holy Spirit to fall on you, to shine a light on anything heavy you're holding, so that you can remove anything keeping you from your purpose. Jesus asks this of us, and he wants freedom for us. He wants us to feel that same elation that first servant would have felt, that, oh, I can breathe. He wants us to feel that way, and he wants us to extend this. He paid our debt, and he wants to pay our debts. He wants us to embody the identity he has for us, forgiven and free, passing the mercy that we have so gratefully received onto others, building the kingdom with this powerful pardon together as his church. No separation from his will or his wishes and no roadblock to achieving the purpose he has for each of us. If you feel that you need God's True, total forgiveness to bring you back to your purpose. If you feel that you need to realign your view of yourself with the way God sees you, with the identity God has for you, then ask the Holy Spirit to come into your situation. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to come into our lives so that we can truly know, experience, and dwell in his ferocious, powerful forgiveness. So that we can come closer to God and his will for our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your ferocious forgiveness. We thank you for your love and mercy and that Jesus has paid our unimaginable debt. Come into our lives, Lord, and shine the light on where we may need to forgive Shine a light on any shadow where unforgiveness or an unmerciful spirit may be hiding. Guide us into a deeper understanding of our identity in you, how you see us. Not how the world wants us to see ourselves or even how we want to see ourselves. And remind us of our purpose. We ask your spirit to equip us to be disciples and build your kingdom. Give us opportunities to extend forgiveness, mercy, and grace, just as you ask us to. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Locking Castle Church, please visit our website at lockingcastlechurch.org.